Section 32 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Chapter 9. The Reformation in France by A. A. Tilly. Part 3. The accession to the throne of a sickly boy, Francis II, threw all the power into the hands of his wife's uncles, the Guises. The Queen Mother made common cause with them, and the constable and Diane de Poitiers were driven from the court. The cardinal, wrote the Florentine ambassador, is pope and king. There was a widespread feeling of discontent. Though the king, being fifteen, had attained his legal majority, it was urged that his weak understanding made a council of government necessary, and that this council ought to consist, according to custom, of the princes of the blood. The Guises were unpopular as foreigners, and the cardinal of Lorraine was hated on his own account. Even the measures which he took for the much-needed improvement of the finances the public debt amounted to over 40 million livres, and there was an annual deficit, added to his unpopularity. An active element of discontent was furnished by the younger sons of the nobility, whose only trade was war, and who were pressing in vain for their arrears of pay. To the Protestants, the cardinal's rule was a natural source of apprehension. He was known to be a thoroughgoing opponent of heresy, and an advocate of the severest measures of repression. At first, the reformers had hopes in Catherine, but these were soon disappointed. She had no power apart from the cardinal. Severe persecutions were set on foot, and Paris began to have the air of a captured city. In September, Calvin was consulted as to whether persecution might be resisted by force. His answer was unfavourable. But whatever effect it may have had on his co-religionists as a body, the political agitation continued. The execution of Anne de Beau, December 23, 1559, his speech on the scaffold, his resolute bearing, made a profound impression not only on Protestants but on Catholics. His one speech, wrote Florimond de Ramon, who was an eyewitness of his execution, did more harm to the Catholic Church than a hundred ministers could have done. The malcontents increased in number, but they lacked a leader. Their natural leader, the King of Navarre, was too unstable and irresolute. His brother Condé promised them his secret support, provided their enterprise was limited to the capture of the Guises. When that was effected, he could come forward. Meanwhile, an acting leader was found in a Protestant gentleman of Périgord, Godefroy de Barry, Seigneur de la Renaudie, whose brother-in-law, Gaspard de Eu, a patriotic citizen of Metz, had recently been strangled, by order of the Guises, without form of trial, in the castle of Vincennes. A large meeting of noblemen and others was held secretly at Nantes on February 1st, 1560, and it was agreed that the arrest of the Guises should take place at Blois on March 6th. 
finding however before this date that the court had already left blois for amboise the conspirators altered it to the sixteenth already on february twelfth the cardinal had been informed in somewhat vague terms of the existence of the plot on his arrival at amboise ten days later he received more precise information the duke of guise took measures accordingly several small bands of conspirators were captured jacques de la motte baron de castelnau a gascon nobleman who had seized the castle of noisy near amboise capitulated on a promise of pardon and finally la renaudie himself was killed in a skirmish march nineteenth summary vengeance was taken on the prisoners some were hanged some beheaded some flung into the loire in sacks castelnau who was honoured with a form of trial was executed on march twenty ninth the chancellor francois olivier who had presided at his trial died on the following day the tumult of amboise as it was contemptuously called had been rashly designed and feebly executed but its barbarous suppression increased the unpopularity of the government and the disorder in the state of the kingdom in april and may there were frequent disturbances in dauphine and provence in dauphine where the bishop of valence jean de montluc and the archbishop of vienne charles de mariac were in favour of toleration the protestants had an able leader in montbrun in provence protestantism was spreading rapidly and at a conference held at merandol on february fifteenth fifteen sixty sixty churches were represented here also there was an active and resolute leader in the person of antoine de mauvan meanwhile the hatred of the guises found vent in numerous pamphlets one of which has become almost a classic it was entitled a letter sent to the tiger of france and was written by the distinguished jurist francois Hautman. it was evident that some change must be made in the policy of the government catherine saw her opportunity of checking the power of the guises by her influence michel de l'hôpital was made chancellor and though the formal decree of his appointment was not drawn up till june thirtieth he assumed the duties of his office on his arrival at paris early in may his first step was to secure the passing of the edict of romorantin may eighteenth fifteen sixty which restored to the bishops the sole cognizance of cases of simple heresy and imposed penalties on false accusers in spite of its apparent severity it was in reality milder than that of compiegne for it allowed several stages of appeal moreover it obviated the introduction of the inquisition it was also by the advice of the chancellor supported by that of coligny that catherine called together an assembly of notables which met at fontainebleau on august twenty first among the speakers were the two prelates montluc and mariac they both deprecated extreme measures of repression and warmly advocated two remedies the reformation of the morals and discipline of the clergy and either a general or a national council still more important was the attitude of coligny at the very opening of the second session 
he presented a petition from the protestants in which after protesting their loyalty to the king they begged that the prosecutions might cease and that temples might be assigned to them for worship there were no signatures but coligny when it came to his turn to speak declared that he could have obtained fifty thousand names in normandy alone he went on to advocate warmly the proposals of monluc and marillac thus the wisest statesman in france stood boldly forward as the champion of the protestants the assembly broke up on august twenty fifth and on the following day the estates were summoned for december tenth and an assembly of the clergy for january twentieth meanwhile all prosecutions for simple heresy apart from sedition were to cease hardly had this decision been announced when information was received of a fresh plot in which not only navarre and conde but the constable and other catholic nobles were implicated its exact nature remains a mystery but it seems clear that a general rising in the south of france under the leadership of the bourbon princes was contemplated calvin knew of it but apparently hoped that if a sufficiently imposing demonstration were made bloodshed would be averted with this object beza had gone to nerac to urge the king of navarre to put himself at the head of the movement a relative of conde's jean de maligny did actually seize part of lyon but from want of proper support had to retire september fifth throughout the months of september and october the court was agitated with news of disturbances in the provinces especially in languedoc as the result of catherine's fears the guises regained their ascendancy and made it their first object to get possession of the persons of navarre and conde both of whom had declined an invitation to the assembly of fontainebleau they were peremptorily summoned to court and towards the end of september set out to obey the summons rejecting the urgent invitations which they received on the way to put themselves at the head of an armed force they arrived at orleans where the court now was on october thirtieth conde was immediately arrested and navarre though left at liberty was closely watched on november twenty sixth conde was condemned to death and his execution was fixed for december tenth more than one attempt was made to assassinate the king of navarre and there were vague rumours that the cardinal intended to remove by death or imprisonment all the leaders of the opposition but his scheme whatever it was was frustrated by the young king's death after a brief illness on december fifth during the short reign of francis the second a great change had been wrought in the character of french protestantism though still purely religious in its aims it had become imbued with a political element the fact that the natural leaders of the opposition to the guises were protestants made this inevitable it was both an evil and a gain an evil because it brought into the protestant ranks men whose only protestantism consisted in offering the grossest insults to forms of religion consecrated by long usage and deep-rooted in the affections of the people again because henceforth protestantism powerful in the numbers quality and organization of its adherents 
and led by men of the highest rank in the kingdom, became a force in the state. To this new condition of things corresponded a new name, that of Ugno. Its precise origin is uncertain, but recent research has shown that it is, at any rate, purely French. The death of Francis II brought the Guise domination to an end. His successor, Charles IX, was only ten years old, and therefore unquestionably a minor. There was no longer the influence of a wife to overshadow that of the mother, and the right to the regency belonged by custom to the King of Navarre. But just before the late king's death, Navarre had renounced, so far as he legally could, this right in favour of Catherine, on condition that his position in the kingdom should be inferior only to hers. It was to Navarre, therefore, and the constable, who was at once recalled to court, that Catherine gave the chief place in her councils, and it was upon Navarre that the hopes of the Huguenot were now centred. The first event of the new reign was the meeting of the estates at Orléans on December 13th. The Chancellor, in his opening speech, deprecated persecution for religious opinions and urged mutual toleration and the abandonment of offensive nicknames such as Papist and Huguenot. On January 1st, 1561, the representatives of the three estates made their speeches and in the course of the next ten days the various cahiers, or written statements of grievances, were presented. Both the nobles and the third estate insisted strongly on the need for a reformation of the church. As regards Protestantism, the third estate pressed for complete toleration, while the clergy demanded vigorous measures of repression. The nobles, being divided in their opinions, presented three cahiers, representing three groups of provinces. One group, consisting of the central provinces, were in favour of rigid repression. Another, formed by the western provinces and the towns of Rouen and Toulouse, demanded toleration, while the third group, composed of the eastern provinces with Normandy and Languedoc, urged that both parties should be ordered to keep the peace, and that only preachers and pastors should be punished. All three estates alike demanded the abolition of the Concordat. On January 28th, a royal edict was issued ordering Parliament to stop all prosecutions for religion and to release all prisoners. On the 31st, the estates were prorogued till May the 1st for the purpose of considering the financial question. The meeting of the clergy fixed for January 20th was dropped in view of the general council which the Pope had ordered to reassemble at Trent on Easter Day. Meanwhile, the answer of the government to the demands of the estates was being embodied in a statute known as the Ordinance of Orléans, which, though dated January 31st, 1561, was not completed till the following August. The Concordat was abolished, and the election of the bishops was transferred to a mixed body of laymen and ecclesiastics who were to submit three names to the king. Residence was imposed on all holders of benefices. The edict of January 28th and the general attitude of the government gave a considerable impulse to the Protestant movement. On March the 2nd, 
their second national synod was held at poitiers at fontainebleau during lent protestant ministers preached openly in the apartments of coligny and of conde fasting was ostentatiously neglected and the queen-mother and the king listened to sermons from bishop monluc in one of the state-rooms of the palace the mere fact of a bishop preaching marked him as a lutheran in the eyes of old-fashioned catholics the constable who went to hear monluc once came away in high dudgeon his orthodoxy took alarm at this general encouragement of heretical doctrine and practice and at the supper party at his house on easter day april sixth he formed with the duc de guise and saint andre a union which was afterwards known as the triumvirate as the result of success the protestants became insolent and defiant at agen and montalban they seized unused catholic places of worship in many towns the mob rose against them and the disturbances ended in bloodshed at beauvais where the cardinal de chatillon was bishop there was a dangerous riot on easter monday in consequence of which an edict was issued on april nineteenth forbidding all provocation to disturbance it remained a dead letter at the end of the month a paris mob having attacked the house of a protestant nobleman was fired on by the defenders the assailants fled leaving several dead and more wounded on may second there were fresh disturbances it was not till the middle of the month that the condition of the capital began to grow quieter on may twenty eighth the clergy of paris presented a remonstrance on the conduct of the protestants and on june eleventh the protestants presented a petition asking for churches to be assigned to them or for permission to build them in their perplexity the government determined on a conference between the council and the parliament of paris to consider the means of putting an end to these disturbances on june eighteenth the chancellor opened the proceedings in a clear and impartial speech the deliberations dragged on from june twenty third to july eleventh as the result a new edict known as the edict of july was issued registered july thirty first all acts and words tending to faction or disturbance were forbidden attendance at any assembly at which worship was celebrated otherwise than according to the forms of the catholic church was to be punished by imprisonment and confiscation of property the cognizance of cases of simple heresy was left to the ecclesiastical courts if the accused was handed over to the secular arm no penalty higher than banishment could be imposed finally it was stated that the edict was only provisional pending the decision of either a general or a national council in spite of this provisional character the edict found no favour with either party both alike abused and ignored it on august first the prorogued meeting of the estates fixed originally for may was opened at pontoise only twenty-six deputies were present thirteen for each of the two lay estates the deputies of the clergy were already in session at poissy where the ecclesiastical synod had begun to sit on july twenty eighth it was not till august twenty seventh that the cahiers were presented at a session held at saint germain at which the clerical deputies were also present 
both Cahiers, were remarkable for the boldness of their proposals. They included a total reform of the judicial system and a transference of a share in the sovereignty to the estates by making their consent requisite for war or for any new taxation. To meet the financial difficulties, three proposals were made. The most thoroughgoing was one made by the third estate that the whole ecclesiastical property of the kingdom should be nationalised, that the clergy should be paid by the state, and that out of the surplus of 72 million livres thus obtained, 42 million should be devoted to the liquidation of the public debt. However enlightened this proposal may have been, it was neither practical nor opportune. It completed the alienation of the Paris Parliament from civil and religious reform and it led to an arrangement between the clergy and the crown. Alarmed by the proposals for their spoliation, the clergy offered the crown a sum of 16,600,000 livres to be paid in instalments spread over ten years. The offer was accepted. With regard to the religious question, the nobles and the third estate alike advocated complete toleration and the calling together of a national council, Already on July 25th, a proclamation had been issued inviting the Protestant ministers to the assembly at Poissy. It was to be a national council in everything but the name. So much concession was made to the Pope and the King of Spain. Accordingly, on September 9th, the village of Poissy, three miles west of Saint-Germain, celebrated as the birthplace of Saint-Louis, was the scene of unusual splendour. The Protestants were represented at the colloquy, as it came to be called, by twelve ministers, including Beza, François de Morel, the president of the First National Synod, and Nicolas de Gaillard, the minister of the French Protestant Church in London, and by twenty laymen, six cardinals, forty archbishops and bishops, twelve doctors of the Sorbonne, and as many canonists, represented the French Catholic Church. The king and the queen mother, the rest of the royal family, the princes of the blood, and the members of the council of state, completed the imposing assemblage. The chief event of the first day was Beza's speech, which both in matter and manner made a deep impression. The cardinal of Lorraine replied to it on September 16th. Though his speech was contemptuously criticised by his theological opponents, it was skilfully adapted to his purpose of making a favourable impression on the unlearned majority of his audience. Both Coligny and Condé praised it, but even more than Beza's, it was the speech of an advocate, and it concluded with a fervid appeal to the young king to remain in the faith of his ancestors. On September 19th, Ippolito d'Este, the cardinal of Ferrara, who enjoyed the revenues of three French archbishoprics, one bishopric and eight abbeys, arrived at Saint-Germain in the capacity of legate a latere from Pius IV, with instructions to use his influence to stop the conference. In his numerous suite was Lene, the successor of Loyola, as general of the Jesuit order, whose college at Paris had been formally legalised by the assembly at Poissy, four days before. Whether owing to the efforts of the legate or not, 
the last two meetings of the colloquy, which were held on September 24th and 26th, with greatly diminished numbers, were wasted in angry and useless discussion. The speech of Lenny on the 26th was especially uncompromising. Catherine, however, did not despair. She arranged a conference between five of the Protestant ministers and five of the Catholic clergy who favoured reform. Among the Protestants was the famous Peter Martyr, who had arrived at Poissy on the evening of September 9th. The delegates met on September 30th and the following day. Having drawn up a formula relating to the sacrament of Holy Communion, they submitted it to the Assembly of Bishops, by whom it was straightway rejected, October 9th. From Catherine's point of view, the colloquy had, as she said, borne no fruit. It had failed to bring about the religious unity which seemed to her essential to the pacification of the kingdom. On Sunday, October 12th, there was a fresh tumult at Paris, outside the gate of Saint-Antoine, and several Protestants were killed or wounded. Moreover, the outlook abroad was threatening. The Spanish ambassador, Thomas Pernot de Chantonnet, told Catherine in his usual bullying tone that his master was ready to come to the assistance of her Catholic subjects. But the Queen Regent put on a bold front and showed a determination to be mistress in her own house. The Guises now left the court October 20th and were shortly followed by the constable and the Maréchal de Saint-André. The principal management of affairs passed into the hands of Coligny and the Chancellor. Never had the Protestants been so sanguine of success. Though the colloquy had failed to produce the result which Catherine and perhaps a few liberal bishops, like Monluc, had expected, from the Protestant point of view, it had been singularly successful. It had enabled the reformers to publish Urbi et Orbi by the mouth of one of their ablest and most eloquent representatives, a clear statement of their doctrines. It is true that by the so-called Edict of Restitution, issued on October 20th, as an equivalent for the 16 millions voted by the clergy, the Protestants were ordered to restore all the churches of which they had taken possession. But almost at the same time, Beza persuaded the government to send letters to the provisional magistrates, enjoining them to allow the Protestants to meet in security and to interpret the edict in a lenient spirit, pending a more definite settlement. Even in Catholic Paris, the numbers attending the meetings reached 15,000. The demand for ministers was greater than Geneva could satisfy. On Michaelmas Day, Beza had celebrated, according to the Protestant rite, the marriage of a young Rouen with the niece of Madame de Tompes. There were rumours that several bishops would shortly declare themselves Protestants. There were even hopes of the king. Meanwhile, the country was in a more disturbed state than ever. On November 16th, there was a massacre at Cahors. Every Sunday produced a disturbance at Paris, and the Feast of St. John, December 27th, was signalised by one of more than ordinary violence round the church of Saint-Médard. Partly in consequence of these outbreaks, Catherine summoned a fresh conference to meet at Saint-Germain on January 3rd, 1562. 
on the seventh the actual business began with a remarkable speech by the chancellor in which far in advance of his time he enunciated modern principles of religious toleration the question before them he said was a political not a religious one a man may be a citizen without being a christian those who had been summoned to the conference thirty presidents and councillors chosen from the eight parliaments and twenty members of the privy council including the princes of the blood then gave their opinions in order the king of navarre's speech showed that he had virtually abandoned the protestant cause this step to which his position rather than his character gave importance had for some time been skilfully manoeuvred by the cardinal of ferrara who had dangled before the king various suggestions of compensation for the territory of spanish navarre of which his wife's ancestor had been deprived by ferdinand the catholic in the final voting the party of repression coalesced with the middle party which thus obtained a small majority and it was in the sense of their views that an edict was drawn up january seventeenth by this edict known as the edict of january which was declared to be provisional pending the decision of a general council the protestants were ordered to give up all the churches and other ecclesiastical buildings in their possession and were forbidden to assemble in any building or to assemble at all within the walls of any city with these limitations the right of assemblage free of molestation was granted to them thus protestantism for the first time in france obtained legal recognition the protestants were far from satisfied but acting on the advice of their leaders they accepted the compromise the catholics were less submissive it was not till after a long and obstinate resistance that the parliament of paris registered the edict on march sixth by that date the issue to which events had been inevitably tending had already declared itself the religious war had begun end of section thirty two